Welcome, Disciple Makers, and thank you for joining us. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board Discipleship Team, led by Scott Sullivan, exists to help churches take the next step toward becoming a healthy, disciple-making church. We've developed tools to help you, like the Watershed Principle, which identifies six main ministries needed to be a healthy church. The Spark Conference, a total church-strengthening event that allows you to access keynotes and breakouts all year long for ongoing training in your ministry area. This year's conference features keynote speakers Fred Luter, Michael Catt, Todd Bolsinger, and Robbie Gallaty, as well as online and in-person regional events. Learn more at www.thesparkconference.com. We also have learning communities across Georgia to sharpen, encourage, and resource leaders personally and professionally. Find a community near you at gabaptist.org discipleship. Don't forget you can find our previous episodes on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and your favorite podcast platform. Now let's join today's broadcast or podcast. Thank you for engaging today and welcome to our Georgia Baptist Discipleship family. I'm very excited to have two incredible leaders on with me today, Jim Putman and Chad Harrington. Jim is the co-founder and senior pastor of Real Life Ministries in Post Falls, Idaho. Outreach Magazine lists Real Life Ministries among the top 100 most influential churches in America. And of course, Jim is a nationally known author and speaker, co-founder of Relational Discipleship Network. And he's, co he's written a lot of books, but he's co-authored one with Chad called The Revolutionary Disciple. We're going to be talking about some of those concepts today. Now, Chad is the founder and publisher of Him Publications and Harrington Interactive Media. He's got degrees from Ozark Christian College, Asbury Theological. And in my opinion, Chad's one of those gifts to the local church in helping them to self-publish authors and to publish quality books and leads actively in his local church. So Jim and Chad, thanks for jumping on with our Georgia Baptist Discipleship family. You bet. Glad to be here. Awesome. You bet. Well, this discussion is going to um, has been highlighted on my calendar, guys, since um, I got the book from you at the National Disciple Making Forum. And, um, and you've authored, it's called The Revolutionary Disciple. It's very rich, very challenging. So, uh, Chad, this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to our audience just for a second, because I'm going to remind you guys that are watching, we, as we always do, we give away resources here. So make sure that you leave a comment. Also, we're going to be putting a 50% off code so that you can purchase The Revolutionary Disciple right where you are. And I do give that uh, my recommendation. I've read every word of the book. Super, super strong read. Now, guys, let's jump in for just a minute. Jim, I'll start with you. And I want to tell our viewers, uh, many of them know who you are. We've got some um, RDN traction in Georgia, some of those groups that are meeting and tracking with you all. So many of them may know that you're a three-time All-American wrestler. But the question I got for you, is it wrestling or is it wrestling? Well, uh, wrestling is what I do with my wife. Uh, wrestling is uh, not professional fake wrestling, but it's the collegiate Olympic wrestling. There you go. And, uh, and it's one of the only biblical sports. Basketball's not in there. Not oh, in there. no. Here we uh, go. Georgia, Georgia football. I'm so glad they beat Alabama. But, oh, uh, uh, you know, football's still not. I love football, but it's not in there. That's it. That's it. Well, listen, I'm from Northwest Louisiana, and uh, my redneck buddies call it wrestling. And if you ain't wrestling, uh, then yeah. you ain't doing it right. That's what they say. So, 
but uh, but th- thanks for being on, Jim. Chad, you're not a wrestler, but you did co-author this book, and I want to want you to talk to us just a second. Tell us how it developed, and and why did you publish it now? Because this is coming out in the middle of pandemic, and you know all of the craziness, this deluge of craziness that's happening in our culture. So talk to us just a second about how it developed with you and Jim. Yeah, well, it's an interesting venture to to write and publish a book on humility, right? It's kind yes. of a, a funny thing. Um, so um, basically what happened is, so my dad is Bobby Harrington and he leads discipleship.org and they wanted a theme book. And so he came to me in, in 2018, believe it or not, and said, Chad, Jim's got this message. Will you help him write this book and co-author it with him? Um, and so I said, uh, I'll need to think about that, Dad. What do you mean? <laughs> My dad gives lots of opportunities to everyone. And so when I talked to Jim on the phone, Jim's message really captured my heart and really resonated with things the Lord's taught me and worked, I mean, worked on me over the years. And what Jim told me on the phone that day in the summer of 2018, before we even started was, hey, Chad, um, let me just put it this way. There's only one thing I want to write about right now, and it's pride in leaders. Hmm. He said, it just, it just wrecks discipleship on every level. That's really the only thing I care about writing right now. And I said, all right, I'm in. And so I ended up flying up to Idaho and we spent a couple of days together and just got the outline of the book. And, and we, we actually ended up spending three years writing it. And so we published it at the top of 2021. Uh, the funny thing was, as we were or not funny, but sort of coincidental, was the fact that 2020 was tumultuous politically and culturally. And right before we kind of put the final touches on it, we realized, man, let's talk about everyone's talking about revolution right now, cultural, political. And so we ended up saying, wow, this actually really matches the heart of our message in kind of a, a uh, upside down way. In other words, a lot of people think force and overcoming and pride is the way that you lead to revolution and find it. Yeah. But then th- the truth is, is actually the humble way of Jesus is what made him a revolutionary. And so we thought, man, for such a time as this, maybe the Lord will use this to really help a lot of people really realize and enter into the, the, you could call it the um, perpetual revolution of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. That's solid. And that's a great segue actually into my first question for Jim, because there's, there's, there's some big ideas, big nuggets there in the book that have huge implication for our leaders. And you talk about five spheres of this discipleship. And the first of those being abiding with Christ in humility. And Jim, you share a personal moment at the beginning of the book where you talk about in your own words, my pride almost upended my ministry. Can you talk to us about that first sphere of abiding with Christ and maybe your own experience? Well, first, I would like to say that pride only almost wrecked my ministry once. Hmm. Uh, Pride is a constant battle. Uh, And, you know, the way we define that is not just arrogance, but over um, uh, reflecting on self. You know, uh, even in negative ways, putting, you know, making me the, the most important and most thought about um, thing in my life, negatively or positively. Yeah. And so pride has is, is been a battle 
And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think everybody has a problem with pride. And I think pride kills every part of your your walk with God. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Pride is what the enemy, you know, uh, tempted us with in the garden, thinking that we knew better than God, that we should be our own gods. You know, every step of the way, pride wrecked our relationship with God. It wrecks our relationship with others. And if all along the prophets hang on to commands, love for God and love for others, and pride is that which ruins love, right? Uh, pride is, is the key. And pride kills discipleship. So, you know, I, our, my, my belief is that we're called to make disciples, not converts. And discipleship is following Jesus. Pride says, I won't follow Jesus. Mm. Um, discipleship is allowing God to change you, to be God and other centered. Pride says, I won't allow him to change me. I want to change him to get him to follow me and, and to submit to him being changed. Pride says, you know, discipleship is being committed to his mission. Well, pride says, no, he needs to be committed to my mission. And so if, if our goal is to make mature disciples, if my personal battle has been about submitting and surrendering, letting him save me rather than trying to save myself, all of it is about pride. And so, um, and as I, I looked at even Christianity in 2020, in 2018, when we started this, I'm, I'm, I'm watching what's going on in our country. I'm watching, you know, people want to be in, you know, is there should we do a new revolution? You know, let's go back to, you know, 1776 and the revolution and, and, and to just go through and go, wait a minute, our kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. We live in America and I'm not saying it's not important, but that's not the king where America is not the new Jerusalem, new Israel, America. Our kingdom is bigger than that. Our king is Jesus, um, you know, and, and again, we had a president who, though I may have agreed with his policies, I absolutely think he's arrogant and a narcissist in many ways. But before I judge him, how often am I? And so there was just a lot of challenges to God's perspective that I felt like we needed to go, okay, Lord. And even in abiding, apart from him, you can do nothing, but abiding is allowing him to prune you, uh, uh, being in him letting him identify your, your identity and declare that, you know, I am what he says I am. And abiding is this uh, walking with Jesus, letting him determine um, the base from which you will live your life, following him, surrendering to him. And then out of the overflow of that, we bear spiritual fruit into every part of our life. So that wrestling match that I've been in my whole life I think everybody's in and we don't talk about it enough. And so that's where the idea of all this came from. Yeah, I love it. And I'm the most selfish person that I've ever met. So, you know, as I read that book, a lot of times I'm reading books and I'm thinking, you know, this leader I just spoke to, but I'd love to share this with him or this nugget with the guy in South Georgia or whatever. But I found myself looking at myself in a mirror throughout the entire book, which to me is a good sign of a, a well-written book. So Chad, in chapter three, there, there's kind of a caveat to this because you talk about Philippians, the letter to Philippians being a humility revolution. Now, I can honestly tell you, I haven't heard that phrase uh, referred to uh, in the book of Philippians. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, that humility revolution and where you came up with that concept and you talk about in there uh, in the book. Yeah, so as we were doing research for the book, um, 
we, I came across this sort of nugget that I, I, I included in chapter three that um, prior to the life of Christ, it, um, so this researcher, John Dixon, wrote a book called Humilitas. And his research showed that prior to the life of Christ and Paul's letter to the Philippians, they examined all of Greek and Hebrew literature. And they said, you know, what is humility previous to that? And then what is humility after that? And there was this pivot in the first century that can be traced back to Paul's letter to the Philippians with regard to how Paul talked about humility. So this mm. is really interesting. Prior to Paul's letter to the Philippians, which talks about the humility of Jesus, um, humility was considered admirable if you, um, let's see, let's say sort of lower yourself in front of someone who's higher than you, right? Humble yourself in front of the king or a magistrate or, you know, someone in authority over you. It made total sense and they prized humbling yourself before them. But what Jesus did is he changed it. So um, let me read the part in Philippians here that we talk about. So this is Philippians 2, 3 and 8. Says, uh, Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Mm. He took on flesh, which was lower than his status. So the idea is that Jesus humbled himself. There was no one higher than Christ. He humbled himself in the presence of people lower than him in terms of their status. And so what John Dixon found in his book, Humilitas, is that um, after Paul's letter to the Philippians, there was a change that impacted the rest of Western culture permanently where people now prize humility as uh, it went from basically despising it to prizing it and redefining it where humil true humility is lowering yourself in the presence of someone equal in status or even lower than you, not just higher. And so Jesus' type of humility was literally a humility revolution. And now today we talk about humility and, that, and that's how everyone thinks about it. And it can be tra traced back historically to Philippians chapter 2. So, you know, if, as I think about my own life, you know, um, I want to say, too, that um, God's done a humility revolution in my life. I mean, I mean that really um, part of the thing when my dad and Jim brought this topic to mind, it was literally my worst fear to write a book on humility. I'm not even kidding. I was I read C.S. Lewis's chapter. It's called something like the great sin in mere Christianity. Yeah. When I was a sophomore in high school. And I'm telling you, I was shaken in my boots and I was terrified of this evil secret sin within me because I saw it. And so for about 20 years, I've wrestled with my pride and now I've completely mastered it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I've had a long time to think about it and to ask the Lord to heal me and, and renew me. And so the process of writing this has been so clarifying for me. And, you know, it's kind of like when I preach a sermon or teach a class in my church, the Lord does. I mean, and everyone knows this in leadership. If you really do it right, the Lord works on you before he works on the church. Um, that was that was so much the case with this book. Uh, it just went deeper. And it was, it, you know, you know, so the Lord really has worked on us. 
And what, what we came up with in terms of our own clear thinking, um, like our, the, the clarity that we felt like the Lord led us to was defining what a humble disciple is. So there's a humility revolution. Well, what does it look like? Right. Yeah. And so um, we found this to be really helpful for people. So I want to, it's in the book, but I want to share it with, with everyone listening and watching. Yeah, now. great. So a humble disciple is someone who knows who they are before God and chooses to go lower by serving, submitting, listening, and confessing. So the first piece of that is, um, you know, th there's this kind of false humility, which is everyone kind of knows, including you, that you're good at something, but you're like, no, 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 it, it wasn't me. And then we spiritualize it. It was all the Lord, you know, it's like, <laughs> dude, come on, just say thank you. Like, you know, so, but then you can be arrogant too, right? So there, but the truth is, is when you look at Jesus in John chapter 13, this is kind of the long answer to your question. It says that Jesus knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going and he knew that the father had put all things under his feet. Mm, that's a good word. Therefore, he got up and washed the disciples' feet. And that, to me, is the best passage to talk about this. He knew exact. He didn't deny who he was. He just didn't grasp. He, he didn't. He wasn't clingy about his deity, but he knew exactly who he was. And and then he chose to go lower than his given status or identity. Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of leaders in the church have a right, technically speaking to bark orders to their staff, right? In a sense, it's like, do this, do that. But that's not the point. That's how the world runs things. And Jesus said, no, do the opposite. And so when we follow Christ, we choose to go lower than anything we have the rights to do, right? Yeah. So this can be politically at home, at church, in work, on the, on the ball field, whatever it is, find out what your position is treat it with humility and then go lower. Yeah. And, um, and then what that looks like is serving, submitting, listening, and confessing. And so I just wanted to share that with everybody because it's been so helpful for me to, to say, you know, this thing I'm terrified about, this pride in me, like what's the antidote? Well, it's, it's Christ saving work. But then as he works it out in us, we can, we can spot it. Okay. I'm winning there because of God working in me to serve and do these different things. Yeah. And so well, thanks for clarifying that yeah. because, you know, one thing I hear you saying is that humility is not going to come to your life and be a part of your character toolbox by accident. It's a choice we make. It's a process we go through. I love what Tim Melmore said. He said, my confidence makes my leadership believable, but my humility makes my confidence believable, which is uh, a lot of what I hear you saying. Now, Jim, in the second sphere uh, the church sphere, this it really challenged my thinking because you talk about what is the church and you talk, and you even asked the question, what is the minimum that we have to do to be a church? And listen, I'm telling you hundreds and hundreds of conversations our team has had across um, the South here of people trying to figure out, can I go completely online or should I just do this or should I do both? And people are trying to figure this out, but you you actually gave some nuts and bolts to this. Can you give us a, a brief overview and maybe start a widespread fight? Let's talk about the spheres for just a second. Yeah. Um, the spheres are covered from the book of Ephesians. Um, he starts out by talking about who you are in Christ. We call that the abiding sphere. Then he goes into, right after that, the church sphere. 
for the most on any other subject uh, than any other subject in Ephesians. Then he goes into the home sphere. And then he goes into the world work slaves and masters sphere. And then he goes into the spiritual realm sphere. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. When you're making disciples, a lot of times we talk about theology. We talk about those things, but Paul actually had a, um, a set of plans, a way to understand every sphere. Part of submitting to the Lord is going, okay, I'm going to abide in you. Here's who I am. But now he says, that's who you are in Christ. But now in the church, this is who they are in Christ. They're your brothers and sisters. They have roles. They're part of the body of Christ. So out of the overflow in the abiding sphere, now this is how you live in the family of God, the body of Christ sphere. And then why does he talk about the family of God before he talks about the spiritual or the, the physical family? Is he saying the physical family isn't as important as the church? No. He's saying it's in your discipleship relationship within the church that you learn a new way of living. You learn uh, from an elder in a church what spiritual leader looks like. You learn what a husband looks like in the church. You learn not just from the teaching, but from the modeling in the family of God, what the home sphere ought to look like. If the church sphere isn't living out God's definitions of order, of the, the plans, so to speak, then that's going to have a direct effect on the, on the uh, home sphere. If in the church sphere you see a leader dominates, controls, uh, abuses, and that's what a shepherd, a, a spiritual father looks like in the church, then that's what that's what these guys emulate in the home. But if you see a leader serving and then you say to them, hey, when you go home, you're the leader, but here's what leadership looks like. They lay down their life for their sheep, for their their, their home, right? Yeah. So it's out of the overflow of your discipleship relationship within your abiding sphere and the church sphere that you understand what it's supposed to look like in the home. It's out of the overflow of the abiding church sphere, home sphere, that you learn what it's supposed to look like in your interactions with the world. There's a scope and sequence there that you don't just go church is church and home is home or work is work. No, God is your designer, your Lord in every sphere of your life. And so that comes from the book of Ephesians. So when you look at um, when God tells us he saves us, he says, I'm saving you from your own way of doing all these things. I'm going to show you what a community looks like. And in the community, the church, this is there, there's actually plans for it. It's not doing any way you want. When Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say he's going to build your church. Hmm. He has no obligation to bless your church. The early church went and started in discipleship, in relationship, and out of that came the church as God designed it. You see that in Acts 2.42. They met together in the temple courts from house to house. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the word of God. They were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship how? Big groups, large group temple courts, small group, house to house. They, they, they ate together. They fellowshiped together. They, they sold their possessions and goods. There was a way in which the church was supposed to look. Every one of us is handed a box to live in called the church in this century. But a lot of us just live in the box we were handed instead of test it by the word of God and go, is that even the right box? God doesn't have any obligation to bless our box. And every, every generation, you don't go, well, my parents parented this way. No, you go... There's some things my parents probably did right in the home, but I'm going to test what I was given by the word of God and then make adjustments in my slice of history. So 
what we're saying is to be humble before the Lord is to say, what does abiding look like? It looks like what Jesus says it looks like, right? Not what I prefer, or what I like. Yeah. What does church look like? What does a home look like? What does a work life and world life look like? What does the spiritual realm look like? Discipleship is to submit myself underneath God's design for every part. Play the part he's commanded me to play in humility in every part. So the church sphere, where people are like, what's the minimum ecclesiology? I'm, well, you know, do you have to do this? Do you have to do that? You know, let's, you don't have to actually meet. You can go online or, you know, okay. I don't mind meeting people where they're at, but I don't change it. What, what I'm, I'm doing so that you'll, I can meet you where you're at and leave you there. I'll meet you where you're at, but I'm going to lead you back towards the design. Hmm. And the, there is a design embedded in the word of God for discipleship. Discipleship isn't just education. It never was. Discipleship happened in relationship. I'll, if you're an educated person, I'll meet you there, but I'm going to lead you back to relationship because relationship is part of discipleship. Hmm. You know, we meet people where they're at and we lead them back towards God's design. That is the process of discipleship, leading them back towards God's design. Well, that's solid, Jim. Now, we've got a lot of people that uh, I might even say the majority of our folks that are, that watch on this platform, um, they're going to be bivocational, single staff, small church, less than 200, 250 people. And they're making decisions right now. And there's a predominant question that we keep getting. A lot of them are talking about. So, so it's, and if you don't want to go down this road, we don't have to go very far. But I want to bring it up because it because we keep getting this question. How valid is the online presence? And in, in, in these the Bible and the single staff churches, they have this fear of if I keep doing the online, our people are going to do that. And we don't have many people anyway. So the people we do have are going to stop coming and they're just going to watch online. Do you have any wisdom? Just maybe any thoughts that the Holy Spirit would give you to speak in the life of those leaders? Um, yeah, we do online, too. But the question is, um, why are we doing it? We're doing it to invite you to the next step. We'll meet you where you're at, but we're, we want to point you to the next step. Now, am I, am I, do I know that some of you are going to use that as your next step out? Like, okay, you used to come in uh, to church service. Now you're using that as an excuse not to come to church service. And um, um, we recognize they're going to do that, but there's God's part, my part, their part. I'm going to do my part. God's got to do his, and they have to do theirs. My intention, even in the weekend service, let's just back up. Weekend service is not all there is to church. The purpose of our weekend service, part of what happens on a weekend service, um, can only happen on a weekend service. But it was never just to meet the temple courts or the large group gathering. There's some things that happen there, preaching, worship, some of those things that we can do together. But our intention was to move you into small groups, into real relationship, not rock skipping, uh, moving so fast that I bounce off of things. No, uh, I'm going to meet you there. We're going to meet you. We're going to have a weekend service. And then we're going to point you to a relationship with Jesus and with other believers in our life group relational discipleship movements. Now, am I aware that some of you are going to go, I don't want to go to a small group. I'm going to do church service. So should I stop doing the church service? No, I'm going to do the church service. But every time you come to the church service, I'm going to point you to the next thing. Right. You can choose to do it or not. That's on you. Same with going to the online. 
online, I'll, I'll meet you there. Here's our intention for it. Am I aware that you'll use something that we intended for one purpose for a different purpose? Yep. But we're, and if you do that, you do that, but we're never going to make that easy for you. We're going to yeah. say every single week, this isn't enough. This isn't the church. And, you know, there's scientists, science right now, go to uh, some of the great books I've been reading right now is um, the other half of the church, oh, which yeah. talks about, which talks about why a video screen does not work with your brain to create joy. A video screen scientifically will never work to create what you need in the right side fast track of your brain. Now, it's so interesting to me that, that we, unless you hear it from science, they won't believe it. And all I'm saying is science is finally catching up with the Bible. Come on. That's right. Right. The, the video screen will never replace somebody's real face, real touch, real things. Some of our people want to, well, that's where they're at. And we can catch them. Yeah, you can catch them there. And that's a start. But you need to convince them to take the next step because the Bible says that's the church. You need to submit yourself before the Lord, not go, well, what do I want to do? Discipleship was never about your preference. It, Jesus didn't really care about their preference. Some things were easier for some people than others. But it was never about what was easy. It's not a, a, a buffet. You get to choose what you want. No, it's about submitting to his authority and do what he says, because he's the creator of the brain. And whether our science is caught up with it or not, he knows how he made us. He knows what we need. We submit to his authority and we obey. That's good. That is good, Jim. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and our folks are really going to chime in with that. Um, and I'm going to say a quick word to those who are watching. I'd love for you to put in the chat right now to give us your thoughts about best practices of what you're seeing when you engage people, how are, because Jim, you used a word there that is a, just a sound bomb in our office in its next step. And I'd love to hear for those reviewing right now, what are you doing to get people to take a next step where they're not just watching, but they're engaging with you, you know, to meet with the pastor, to come to a new member class or whatever. We'd love to hear from you guys. Now, Chad, there's also the home sphere and there's a great section in the book and it says, when the church becomes home, and you talk about singleness, and you use this stat that one third of all U.S. homes is a single parent household. Now, Dr. P.J. Dunn is on our team, and he's a singles ministry expert, and uh, so he's going to be flying high right now. And he says this, that singles are potentially the greatest untapped resource in the church. So, Chad, can you talk to us just a second about this home sphere and, and the connection with singles? Yeah, so we're talking about humility and uh, thinking about it in the home sphere. A lot of times we think though our home sphere is just like our four walls and our family, but in Christ, the church is our is our is our new family, right? Mm. So the home sphere, I think, especially as we think about singles, needs to include singles. And right, it's not convenient um, to do that. In fact, the idol of family can prevent people from doing that. Um, but when we're when we have a new family in Christ, it, it changes the dynamic. So, um, you know, it's a, in other words, we lay our lives down in humility by serving singles, by welcoming welcoming them into our home. So, funny short story. I, in 2010, I did an internship at Jim's Church, Real Life Ministries in Post Falls, Idaho. And so, um, Jim Jim during that period of time welcomed me. I was single at the time. 
um, welcomed me into his family practices. So every month they had so many people in their family, you know, so he has three, is it three sisters, Jim? And or, they all had kids uh, or five. Something, it was it's crazy. Four sisters, no, yeah. no, four, okay. So they had tons of birthdays all the time because um, it's kids and then grandkids. So Jim actually invited me to their monthly birthday celebration. And I got to hear them sing their awful version of happy birthday. I'll let him explain that if he wants. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I felt so loved in that. And that left an impression on me about what this looks like. It wasn't good. It wasn't convenient for them to invite the intern over. Now, Jim knows my dad pretty well. So I think that part of it is, you know, just um, taking care of a family, friends, right? So I married at 30. Uh, I was single for a while. Um, it, in my mind, I was always going to be single. I was like, man, if I had 30 and I'm not married, I'm, I'm devastated here. But uh, the truth is, it can be really hard if you get into your late 20s. And then let's right. say you're divorced or your spouse died. And there's a number of reasons you're single, right? Extreme loneliness. And then you're a single parent. Lord have mercy on us if we don't humble ourselves and disciple and and welcome into relationship the singles in our church. So I just wanted to give some advice. We include more. Wow. We have a whole chapter on that in the book, but just some advice as a as a brother to say to you: seek out the singles intentionally, mm. make them feel welcomed, and then um, disciple them as you bring them into your home, as you bring them into your home group. Don't have a singles only group over here. And then you got the rest of the small groups over here. No, intergenerational. Make it, make it truly community, which includes diversity. So uh, that's so that's good. And I'm, and I'm grateful that you guys put that in the book because here's what we hear in Georgia is that we hope to reach singles in 2022. And I'm just like, I, I remind our audience all the time that hope is an energy stimulator, but it's not a strategy. Like you can't hope you're going to do that. I mean, you use the word intentional here, which is uh, just a key word that we use a lot. So thanks for doing that. Now, Jim, let's switch over to turn the page and hit this world sphere, because this is a super interesting paradigm that you write about the Acts 4 and Romans 13 paragraph, the when to stand up and the when to, to sit yeah. down. So talk to so us a little the, bit how that works. The world sphere in Ephesians talks about slaves and masters or employees or employers, right? So when you're interacting out there, but it's expanded beyond that. I mean, like sports world, your kids are in the sports world. It's where you interact with the world in all those other areas. One of the aspects of that is with the government. And, um, you know, Romans 13, um, you know, First Peter, there is uh, Paul's writing and Peter's writing to people that are living in the Roman Empire. And we think it's bad in America because we've seen how far it's gone. But, you know, you're a Christian back then. There's no voting. There's no, uh, you know, semblance of Christian background. And again, we, we're so Americanized, right? The Bible isn't just for America. There are people all around the world that are living in this world where their rights, their, their biblical beliefs uh, the way the government works, they, there is no piece of Christianity that's a part of that. Hmm. And, uh, and so what does it look like to live in a broken world where you're a kingdom of Jesus person? That's your primary thing, not um, America first, Jesus first. 
And then, then how do I respond in the government that I'm in and with authority? And, and so we deal with this, okay, Romans 13 says I'm to obey the, the government officials, right? But then the same guys who wrote that in Acts 4 were told not to preach the gospel or to proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. And they said, you tell me who it's better to listen to, you or the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. We cannot help it. So what is this balancing act of living in a world where um, I may disagree or have religious uh, objections to certain things that are going on in my culture? And I have to wrestle with, okay, let me just say it this way. One of the things that drives me crazy is I hear Christians and I say this in the book. I hear Christians Knowing the first and second amendments, they can tell you where they came from, what, what, you know, what, what you know, the, the early church or the early uh, uh, fathers of the country, you know, they, but, but I'm like, Hey, have you ever read Romans 13? Good word. Right. They yeah. got, they got two bumper stickers on their car. One says my boss is a Jewish carpenter. The other says, you want my gun? You're going to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm a hunter. If you were in my room right now, you're going to see dead animals everywhere. I got a lot of guns. I'm going to vote against anything that comes against the Second Amendment, right, when it comes to those things. But when it's past law, how do I respond? And again, we have to wrestle with this. Where I use the example in the book of we're in this place where we're having to face some things we've never had to face before. And we're having to use some muscles we've never used. How do we wrestle through this? When do I stand up? When do I not? When do I submit? When do I don't? And that's a wrestling match for all of us, for me too, as a leader. Yeah. When am I going to go? No, I will not do that. And when am I going to go? Okay. Even though I don't like it and it's against the constitution, it's not sin in scripture for me to, you didn't ask me to sin. You, but you did break the constitution in my view, but now how do I wrestle through that? And I, and I, I'm not here to answer that question, but you cannot ignore Romans 13. You don't get the right to ignore Romans 13, right? Or first Peter five, or uh, you don't get to do that. You have to use scripture and inject it or, or or put it in the recipe of your decision-making and humility um, before leaders, I ask this question, do you, I can't disagree with Joe Biden more than I do on so many issues, but do I pray for him? If I got five minutes with him, would I swear at him or does Jesus love him? Mm-hmm. Right. Do I bring Jesus into a situation when it comes to Donald Trump, though, I, I may agree with his policies, his attitude and his arrogance. If I get five minutes with him, do I bow before him because he's the president or do I see him as, uh, got, you know, the same way that we would see Caesar or anybody? There's just a lot of wrestling that people have yes. to do. Are we Christian Christ followers or is it America? Or it, we have to work because I use the example of these two trees. I go hunting and these two trees are right next to each other. And it looks like one tree, but you get up closer to it and it's two trees. And I'm looking for a place to put a tree stand. So I'll actually put the tree stand in both trees. But as time goes by, if those two trees start to separate, my tree stand's got to go in one or the other. I can't, it's, uh, I, it's not, it, you can't stretch to both of them. America was a place where these things were together. Well, as it gets further and further apart, I got to choose my tree. 
Now we'd like to get rope and pull them back together, but if if they aren't going to come back together, I got to make choices. So when do I go? I'm going to pray. I'm going to be a missionary in a foreign land. Or when am I going to? How am I going to vote? How many? These are all things we have to wrestle through. And people already come from different places. Military guys, they lost people. It, this is going to be. They they put their hand on the Constitution and they fought for it. We got to give them time to wrestle through. How does this work? And give each other grace. And this is a very difficult subject right now. Yeah, but it really humility is. Humility is required, and you have to use the scripture as your constitution first, not this first and second amendments. Yeah, and I tell you what, that stands out all the way through the book. I love the tension that you are presenting with Acts 4, Romans 13 paradigm. And in my mind, I think about it personally, what it emphasizes to me is the the importance of my personal intimate walk with Jesus, because as I live in the tension, it's that Holy Spirit living and working and speaking in me that's helping me make those those decisions there. So, so good, Jim. Thanks for uh, illuminating that just a little. Now, Chad, let's talk about the spiritual fear here. Let's let's close the, the gap. And it's super important because it's the way you guys write, this kind of involves all the spheres. And you write, exaltation takes place only after humiliation. And, and really, I guess, for the end result of the revolutionary disciple, it's what you would call fullness. So talk to us a little bit about the spiritual fear. fear. And Jim, if you have any input here, feel free to do that. Yeah, so the, the fifth sphere, and, and we're talking about walking humbly with Jesus in every area of life. So abiding in Christ, in the church, in the home, and in the world. The fifth sphere is really an all-encompassing one. So all of the other ones fit within this one because the spiritual realm is all around us, right? In all of the spheres. And so, but we need to, we need to be humble to the authorities, the authority of Christ, who is the head of the church, but also we need to be humble with the spiritual authorities around us, right? They're not a force to be reckoned with lightly. So we kind of have to acknowledge what's going on around us. And so um, it, it all comes back, Scott, to the gospel. You know, so we talk about your humiliation comes before your exaltation. I was like, what, what are you talking about? Well, we got to remember that the gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins, believe in him, and you get to go to heaven. The gospel includes that, but it's much more. And it includes the fact that Christ was exalted and he reigns on high. In other words, if we're walking humbly, we're walking humbly ultimately under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is living today enthroned at the right hand of the father right so that's number one but how in other words um it says you know god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so our humiliation just like christ's humiliation was preceded the exaltation of christ in other words you know we've got to die to ourselves to live for god and so the cross always comes before the resurrection and so it's this path, right, of this revolutionary path. It doesn't make sense. And, um, but that's the path of, of, and the goal. In other words, the goal is not just to beg and grovel and to be, oh, woe is me, I'm being humble, right? The reason that, that we follow Christ down the Via Della Rosa on the path of the painful cross is not because we're masochists. Yeah. It's because it leads to exaltation where we reign with Christ. That's our original Genesis one and two commission. And that's our destiny, right? 
is to be powerful in the kingdom. And so that's the, that's the positive side of the revolution. It's real power. It's real change. It's real revolution. And so what does that look like, Scott? It looks like this vision in Ephesians of a radiant bride, of a powerful, strong warrior. And I love what the, he, Paul starts this vision in Ephesians 4. Let me read this. He says, he gave the fivefold ministry leaders to build up the body of Christ. In verse 13, he says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of mm. the fullness of Christ. And then that vision of Ephesians 4 is realized in Ephesians 6. When this, it's not just we all as individual warriors, but us under the head together as the church are that strong warrior. And that's how we truly take ground is together. And Jim's written a lot about the power of together. In fact, he has a book called that. And I think that that's a great place to, to end because this, this vision, what does it look like to lead this revolution and be a part of it? It looks like a powerful, full, mature warrior that is the Christ that is Christ in the church. And that's what we get to be a part of. Oh, that is so good. Now, GM, let me give you a final word here. Um, is there anything as you think about all of these leaders, pastors, second chair, uh, single staff, bivocational that are listening today, any word that you would maybe just a word of encouragement to those who are like me, who do struggle with pride and, and don't have that sense of humility like we should or want any word you'd leave them with? I aspire to become a humble man, but boy, I fail at it a lot. We aspire to be God's church, but God's grace is sufficient, you know, and it get, pours it. Grace isn't just a one-time deposit. He continually pours grace into us because we leak, mm. right? And uh, and so I just really, that that this is the goal. Not yet that we've already attained it, but we press on. You know, I would just, just close with, you know, people read the, the this or this battle in Ephesians 6, and then they talk about the spiritual armor, and they read it as though it's written to an individual, but it's not. It's written to the church. And how do we fight for one another? Um, we are the, the body of Christ. We have the armor. Some of us you know, we've got the breastplate of righteousness, the, the helmet of salvation. He's talking not about us as an individual. And a lot of us, because we want to be proud, we don't want to confess that we sin or we have to look like we're the expert or we're ashamed because we think somebody's going to judge us. We try to have a me and Jesus sort of uh, relationship with God. And if you're going to defeat pride, it means that you have to accept that you're broken, that Jesus loves you, that he's sanctifying you in a process. And that process of battling the devil externally, battling internally is a process we fight and wrestle with and win together as a group of people. God's plan for us is his spirit, his word, and his people. And pride is what keeps us from fighting that battle together. And so even in Ephesians 6, the wrestling is a spiritual battle we fight together. It's not written to an individual, though it has an individual application. It's written to the family, the body. And we fight for each other, telling each other the truth, confessing our sins, uh, carrying one another's burdens. You know, Unless we humble ourselves and, and see that, 
you know, not just as I'm mature, so I'm a helper. No, I'm mature, I'm a helper, but I also need help. That's who I am. I have to have that. I do this together. If we don't get there, we don't win. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, Jim, Chad, listen, guys, you have enriched my life and my ministry over the last few minutes. So thank you for coming on. And let me just speak for a moment to our leaders. The revolutionary disciple shouldn't be a revolutionary concept, but it is because so many of our believers have let their guard down and have chosen easier paths, expecting greater gain and experiencing this erosion of gospel influence. So let me put it this way. If you feel like you're trying to paint a 2022 picture with a 1950s color palette and it's not working, I hope that you'll contact me or one of our consultants or join one of the 40 learning communities that we have in Georgia that are set up to help you work through this and process and be the disciple maker God led you to be and created a healthy disciple making church. Jim Putman, Chad Harrington, thank you guys. So grateful for the both of you. And we will be putting the 50% off of the Revolutionary Disciple book in the chats uh, with the code uh, Georgia and uh, love for our guys, every one of you, to order that well worth it. Thanks for being on with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you guys. And Chad Harrington, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. Awesome. Good to Lana see you. Melton, you bet. Lana Melton, thanks for producing. And I want to remind our listeners that we're only able to do this because you guys give to the cooperative program, and it's also how my children eat. So thank you for giving <laughs> to that. Now, I pray that today's discussion with Jim and Chad will challenge, equip, and inspire you to go make world-impacting disciple-makers. Thanks for listening. We want to continue the conversation from today's broadcast in a learning community near you. These learning communities are designed to celebrate your biggest wins, resource your greatest need, and help you finish well. We also want to give you a free gift, the five discipleship shifts most churches need to make to produce world-impacting disciple-makers. You can download this resource by going to ministryboom.com. This five-page PDF is a discipleship alignment checklist. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board is able to provide resources like this because of gifts from Georgia Baptists to the cooperative program. For more information on this broadcast and a customized discipleship plan for your church, visit gabaptist.org slash discipleship. Engage with us on your time through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. Lastly, if you've benefited from this conversation today, please share this with a friend as we seek to help churches make world-impacting disciple-making.